Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, Finding Rabbit, and I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the Foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on YouTube or Audio Burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer, and available now for streaming on iHeartRadio. I have found in my law enforcement career that sometimes there are multiple witnesses who have only one part of the entire picture or one vision of the event and have no idea what was seen or known by others in the area. Today's story exemplifies exactly what it takes in an investigation to put together different pieces of the puzzle to solve history's military mysteries. Stay tuned and we will tell you exactly how we were able to supply a name to an American hero remembered only as Rabbit. We supplied that name to the last remaining eyewitness to his death. And yes, this story will have a happy ending as the case of Finding Rabbit was solved. All of us here at the Foundation want to dedicate this episode to our loyal listeners at Nansaman River High School in Suffolk, Virginia, home of the Warriors. Thanks for loaning us one of your Warriors to help tell the story of one of our missing Warriors from World War II. And now, on with our show. Today's episode is from case number 0216 in the investigative case files of the Chief Brickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. Sometimes solving one of history's military mysteries is kind of like baking a cake. You add a little of this, you find a little of that in the pantry, you shake, you stir, you stir, you shake, you bake, and voila. Sometimes it all comes together in one incredible outcome. Stay tuned while we fill you in on how we put together a lot of different ingredients to bake the masterpiece known as Finding Rabbit on today's No Home for Heroes. This cake really takes the cake. Oh, that was a groaner. I can hear thousands of you go ouch all over the world who are listening to this podcast. Well, sorry about the terrible pun. This really takes the cake. Uh But I just couldn't resist it. In 2014, one of our researchers here at the foundation found a book titled, Did I Do Enough? Written by a retired Marine colonel named Elwin Hart. The author wrote of his experiences during World War II and one of his exploits as a sergeant during the invasion of Tarawa in the South Pacific naturally got our attention. Let's listen to the story in Colonel Hart's own words. The white man who was killed sitting on the side of our bunker was an 18-year-old we called Rabbit from Texas. He was a particular favorite of Sergeant Dick Hogue on the wire chief and a a close friend of mine. Sometime late on D-Day, Rabbit was sitting up on the edge of our mortar pit. Sergeant Hogue let out a yell at Rabbit, and almost simultaneously, a shot rang out and Rabbit tumbled to the floor of the dugout. Dick was pretty shook up and spent some time trying to revive him to no avail. 
so we had to put up Rabbit on the outside of the dugout and get on with our jobs. Rabbit lay there for the next three days along with many other KIAs on Tarawa. Well, this is kind of what's known as a clue in police work. A clue that might describe the actual circumstances of a death for one of our hundreds of MIAs from the Battle of Tarawa. But, and there's always a but in history's military mysteries, we didn't have a name to punch into our random instant statistical correlation system database. We just didn't have the name. All we had was the nickname. So the question became, who was Rabbit? Which we hope would lead to the Finding Rabbit mission if he were still an MIA. With a little old-style police work and a little old-style detective work, our Foundation investigators were able to find Colonel Hart, and we opened up an email dialogue with him to help us identify Rabbit and restore his name after over 70 years. After over 70 years that had faded Colonel Hart's memory of that horrific day watching Rabbit die on Tarawa's war-torn beach. Our investigators resorted to another classic tool in police work. You've probably seen this in the movies or on TV. We used a photo lineup. We pulled from our files photos of six or eight of the most likely suspects to be Rabbit based on Colonel Hart's estimate of his age, his physical description, and, of course, his Texas heritage. We sent those photos one by one via email to Colonel Hart. On photo number three, we had a winner. Rick, that was Rabbit, I'm sure. Description fits exactly. I don't know anything about his burial. He was sitting up on the edge of our abandoned morgue pit, which I was using for my radio station site, when he was shot by a sniper in a nearby palm tree. All our guys, at least six or eight, came out and fired into all the remaining palm trees, and we never got any more fire from that source. Rabbit fell into our pit, and Sergeant Dick Hogue, our wire chief, jumped down and started crying over Rabbit and yelling, No! 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 I believe he died instantly, shot through the heart as I remember. I remember him being placed up on the outside of our pit on the water side, and he stayed there as I recall for some time. I don't recall anything about a burial or whether he was still there when the three-day disaster was over. I recall Rabbit is always happy, laughing a lot, and a friendly person. Regards, Elwin. Rabbit was Private First Class Elmer Lewis Mathis Jr. He was the only unresolved Private First Class from Texas that was in the Headquarters Company 8th Marines 2nd Battalion with Sergeant Hart. Private First Class Mathis was slightly older at age 20 than that described by Sergeant Hart, but in his picture, he looked a lot younger. Rabbit's hair color was a light brown. He weighed a whopping 115 pounds. His blood type was O, and he was about oh, 65 and a half inches. So that makes him 5 foot 5 and a half inches, 115 pounds. Not a very big person. Private First Class Mathis listed his religious preference as Protestant in his record, and the letter P for Protestant was imprinted on his United States Marine Corps identification disc or dog tags. He had no tattoos, no birthmarks, no scars, and there were no previous injuries noted in his medical records. Private First Class Mathis had blue eyes and was unmarried, and his official USMC photograph does not contain a height chart to confirm his listed height of 65 and a half inches. 
His last recorded dental examination was on 24 March 1941, shortly after his enlistment, when the chart noted that he had three fillings, no extractions, and no wisdom teeth present. The dental examiner noted that he had mottled enamel on his teeth, and one of his Marine Corps company mates later noted that Private First Class Mathis had buck teeth, hence the nickname that he got from his buddies of Rabbit for the large protruding front teeth that made him look like, well, even the cartoon character in 1943, Bugs Bunny. I know, or I don't know really, if you know this or not. But Marines can be kind of cruel to a fellow Marine in the giving them their nicknames, Rabbit. But I bet that just about every one of Rabbit's company mates would probably fight any sailor or soldier who called Private First Class Mathis by his nickname, Rabbit. Private First Class Mathis was born in Crosbyton, Texas. His last name was actually misspelled on his birth certificate, and he had no first name listed. At the time of the 1940 census, Private First Class Mathis was living with his parents, Elmer L. Mathis Sr. and Eunice Mathis. He was also living with his brother, a sister, and a grandmother, and they resided in Hereford, Texas. I don't know where, if you know where that's at, but it's up in the Panhandle area of Texas. During the census, Elmer's father listed his occupation as a bookkeeper for a wholesale oil agency. Elmer was still attending high school when he enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserves on 20 March 1941 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and he was assigned the rank of private. Because he was not yet 18 years of age, which was the age at which you could enlist at that time without parental approval, Private Mathis just falsified his birth date. He gave it as 30 July 1922, when he was actually born on 29 July 1923. At the time of his enlistment, he noted his residence as Hereford, Texas. Private Mathis listed his mother, Mrs. Eunice Mathis of Hereford, Texas, at his next of kin. He completed all the necessary paperwork to receive United States government life insurance. Private Mathis completed his basic training with the 2nd Recruit Battalion in San Diego, California, and was assigned to Company H, Howe Company, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, who were then stationed at Camp Elliott, San Diego, California. Private Mathis was first shipped to overseas to Tatila, American Samoa, in April of 1942, where he was promoted to Private First Class. In October 1942, Private First Class Mathis was transferred to Headquarters Company, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, and he was assigned duties as a telephone operator. Private First Class Mathis and his company were soon at sea from Samoa to the Gilbert Islands to participate in the Battle of Guadalcanal. After Guadalcanal, Private First Class Mathis and his unit was withdrawn to New Zealand for a period of refit and retraining in anticipation of the invasion of Tarawa. Private First Class Mathis was sick in the field hospital from 1 July through the 4th of July, 1943, with an unknown illness or injury. Although it's not recorded, it's likely that he caught malaria while he was on Guadalcanal, as most of the other Marines in his unit did. Private Mathis' unit, the Headquarters Company, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, were transported from their training bases in Wellington, New Zealand, 
to Tarawa on board the transport ship USS Haywood. At about a.m., that's 0917 hours on the first morning of the battle, 20 November 1943, 522 officers and men of the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, began their assault against Red Beach 3 on Tarawa. They were in multiple waves, commanded by Major Jim Crow, a legendary member of that unit, and were carried in an assortment of both amphibious tractors, LVTs, and Higgins boats, landing craft. Approximately 500 yards from the beach, a little over a quarter of a mile, the landing craft crashed into the reef surrounding Tarawa and found that there was not sufficient water for them to float over the reef. The slower-moving LVTs that had tracks were able to crawl over the reef with their tank-like tracks, but they were under heavy concentrated fire from Japanese 70mm anti-boat guns on their left and other weapons including artillery and multiple machine gun positions on the beach. The landing craft carrying Private First Class Mathis Company reached a point in line with and only a few yards east of the head of the pier that jutted out from the beach. The pier was essentially the dividing point between Red Beach 3 and Red Beach 2 to the west. At this point, the landing craft became hung up on the reef and could go no farther. The ramps on the front of the landing craft were lowered, and Marines, including Private First Class Mathis, leapt into the water to begin the long wade to shore. For most of the Marines, this was about chest deep. Now, I'm guessing that for Private First Class Mathis, it probably came up just below his nose at only five feet, five and a half inches tall. Within minutes, many were torn to pieces by artillery explosions and, mu- and multiple machine guns firing at them. The battalion communications officer assigned to Private First Class Mathis Company, 2nd Lieutenant George F. Kern, was seriously wounded in the leg while attempting to reach the shore, and he was last seen wading back out toward the reef to seek evacuation to a ship offshore. Lieutenant Kern was never seen again, and to this very day, he remains another one of our MIAs from Tarawa. Private First Class Mathis was able to reach the shore on Red Beach 3 on the first day of the invasion. On reaching the beach, he and his company located what appeared to be an abandoned mortar pit about 50 yards from the end of the pier. The pit was open on the water side, at about 12 feet by 12 feet wide with logs on three sides, five or six logs deep. There, Private First Class Mathis and his company mates set up their communications equipment and began operations. And there, Late in the afternoon on the first day of the invasion, Private First Class Elmer Lewis Mathis, Jr. lost his life to a Japanese sniper bullet, and he became lost to history as missing in action. Well, now we had Rabbit's name, his real name. With his name, all we have to do is find him, right? Finding Rabbit became the mission, and it was easy and it was hard. The mission was easy because all of Rabbit's military records listed his burial in grave number 10 in Cemetery 27 on Tarawa. Well, the mission was hard because Cemetery 27 was lost. The entire cemetery was lost. Yep, the United States government lost the entire cemetery with approximately 49 Marines and sailors burying it. They lost it 
for almost 70 years. In fact, a little over 70 years. But, and here's a good but, a year after our Foundation investigation put a real name to Rabbit's nickname and a specific burial location to Rabbit's resting place on Tarawa in Cemetery 27, the lost cemetery was found during a construction project on Tarawa. On May 20, 2016, the media reported that Private First Class Mathis had been identified by the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory using DNA analysis, which matched Rabbit's sister. DNA analysis, that voodoo science that the joint POW-MIA accounting agency had laughed at during my tenure there when I first worked Rabbit's case in 2011, had come through again. Welcome home, Maureen. Welcome home to your family in Hereford, Texas. We're sorry it took us so long in finding Rabbit. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to Listen Free on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts from, and even iHeartRadio. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday when we will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. You sure don't want to miss our next episode with another true story about one of our missing American heroes. Our next episode will fill you in on all the mysterious details of one of our cases, complete with the anguished pleading of a distraught mother trying to get the government to help find her missing son. Tune in to hear it for yourself next week on No Home for Heroes. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas, I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that, having heroes, forgets them.